I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 29 for May of 2018. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about showrunners that helmed multiple genre TV series, and our show topics include a look back at the full season of Netflix's Lost in Space remake and a look at the opening two episodes of season five of The Hundred on the CW. And along with those great show topics, we have an interview with Malcolm Barrett of Timeless. And I was so happy to get that particular interview. I've been really enjoying season two of Timeless. Hopefully not its last, although it's not looking good. But that interview is relatively spoiler free just so you know it was a while ago in fact it was before some of the reveals for his character in recent episodes which i won't mention but it's just basically a a very broad look at the character of rufus carlin so a very enjoyable interview because malcolm barrett definitely has good conversational skills (laughs) but as for the show topics these are going to be hugely spoilery for both The Hundred and Lost in Space. So if you haven't seen the first couple episodes of The Hundred, or if you haven't seen all of season one of Lost in Space, you might want to avoid those discussions for now and come back to them when you've seen it. So if you need to skip around to avoid certain topics, here are the time codes for today's discussions. Multiple series showrunners. 202. Lost in Space. 1630. The Hundred. 3617. Timeless Interview, 5844. But of course, our discussion topic, as always, is relatively spoiler-free. This one's totally spoiler-free, I think. And this is going to be a discussion of showrunners who have run more than one genre show. And this could be sci-fi, fantasy, horror, comics, just about anything that falls under the geek domain on Den of Geek. And this was a harder list to put together than I thought it was going to be. Well, only from the standpoint of making the cut to a final six. You know, sometimes with our topics, we have a difficult time coming up with six. We get four or five really good ones here. There are some good showrunners that didn't make the cut. Yeah, I think I should have clarified that. Yeah, sometimes it's tough to find them. This time it's tough to pare it down. So uh, we had to make some tough decisions, but I think it was and educational experiences for us to put it together and hopefully for you to listen to. What do you got to start off with, Dave? Well, you know, one of the first things, Mike, the term showrunner, I think for some of our younger listeners, the term showrunner has been in their lexicon for essentially their entire television viewing life. I mean, it's really not that old a term. So on the one hand, before Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse of Lost, when did we ever hear the term showrunner? <laughs> I don't think we really did. I mean, I think we somewhat heard of creators like Gene Roddenberry and 
J. Michael Straczynski for Babylon 5, things like that. But no one called them showrunner. And certainly it's the first time I heard it was with Lost. Right. I mean, executive producer, perhaps. Now, I'm going with Damon Lindelof, who was the showrunner for Lost, and he was the showrunner for The Leftovers. But it's difficult to bring him up without at least mentioning Carlton Cuse, because Damon and Carlton, it went together for fans of Lost. And Carlton Cuse, in his own right, also showruns Colony, which is a current series that I think a lot of our listeners are really into. But the fact that J.J. Abrams created Lost and then almost immediately turned it over to Damon and Carlton, you know, that's somewhat rare. Ordinarily, the person that creates the show at least show runs it the first season. Yeah, the one I can think of is Jonathan Nolan, who created Person of Interest and now does Westworld. But he turned Person of Interest over right away. So it it does happen where they create it and then turn it over. Well, yeah. And I think in a lot of cases, these creative minds are already on to the next project and <laughs> yeah. they find somebody that they trust and just turn it over. Well, I think that's what happened with Carlton. In fact, Carlton Q's co-created Colony with Ryan Condal, but I'm pretty sure Ryan Condal is the showrunner at this point. But Carlton did stick around for a little while. Yeah. And the other interesting thing about Damon Lindelof and and Carlton Cuse is they had their own podcast and they were really open and accessible to fans, even somewhat open to explanations of what the hell was going on with certain aspects of loss, not necessarily the ending, although I think in the interim they may have given (laughs) some explanations, but that accessibility to the fans and and just personality wise. I mean, you know, Damon Lindelof is personality plus. Yeah, for sure. And and I think um, J. Michael Straczynski was one of the first people to make himself accessible to fans, and they actually contributed somewhat to the look and feel of Babylon 5 in some ways. But yeah, that's a great one to start off with. And I kind of went a little bit deeper as well, because I want to start off with Eric Kripke, who seems to be an obvious choice once you hear the name, because he did showrun Supernatural for the first five seasons, and I believe he's credited as the creator of that one as well. In fact, his other two shows that are on my list, Revolution and Timeless, also he was the creator of in addition to show running it. So definitely got some huge credibility there. In April of 2015, in fact, Kripke announced that he's going to be doing another one, a comic book series called Jacked for DC's Vertigo imprint. The story follows Josh Jaffe, a neurotic family man who buys an online smart pill to increase his focus, but the pill gives him incredible strength and power, making him become a real life superhero. And this has been in development since 2015 for the USA network. So whether or not Kripke is going to follow that through, it has been a number of years, so it might be stuck in development land, but he certainly got his hands full with timeless at the moment anyway, but I can't help but think maybe when timeless ends, we'll be hearing about jacked the tv show (laughs) yeah it sounds really cool and obviously we're uh, on the doorstep of the fall pilot season so oh uh, upfronts are going to be announcing a lot of that stuff right yeah yeah so all right now next showrunner i want to talk about uh, again obvious choices how do you not include joss whedon creator of buffy the vampire slayer firefly dollhouse angel and there's a documentary out there uh, I forget the exact title, but it, it, it's all about showrunners, and it's not limited to the genre field. But he talks about the fact that he ran three shows in one calendar year 
58 episodes, I, I can't even imagine. Yeah. And, and I think I put him in the same category we mentioned with Carlton Cuse and uh, Jonathan Nolan, where he started Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and then turned it over to Jed and Marissa Tantoro. And so, yeah, he's definitely got that emeritus status. Yeah, and the thing about Joss Whedon, I think in a lot of cases, the showrunner is the creator, often a writer on the team. And, and of course, Joss Whedon writes for the you know his shows, but he also has his hand in everything from the writing to the music. I believe he even composes some of the music. And then, of course, you mentioned his brother, Jed Whedon, and his sister-in-law, Marissa Tancheron. So it, it really becomes a family affair for Joss Whedon, not only with the writers, but also the actors, because you, you see there's this pool of Whedon actors that just seem to crop up in whatever show he's doing, and they're always great. So why not? Exactly. And I think that's a key element here to showrunners, is that they're not just executive producers. They're also writers. And sometimes the term showrunner is just the head writer in the writing room who steers the story arcs and has in his head this multi-year arc of where it might be headed in the in the long run people always like to ask that question and uh, my next one that i'm going to be talking about is michelle lavretta this was a tough choice because i could have picked michelle lavretta or emily andrus but michelle lavretta is credited with creating lost girl and emily andrus did take it over from her later but since she had that creator status i went with michelle she also sure runs killjoys to this day, still running. And we talked to Michelle Lavretta on this podcast, so I kind of felt a little soft spot for her. She started out as a writer, as many of these showrunners did. She wrote for Mutant X and even did a Tia Carreri vehicle called Relic Hunter in Canada before creating Lost Girl with Prodigy Pictures. And you remember at the time, we were just starting to podcast when Lost Girl came out, and Lost Girl broke viewership records at Showcase its home network in Canada. You know, most of us saw it on sci-fi, but Showcase had never seen so many viewers for a genre show or any show that they had put on. So I think that really made it of note. And she did leave the show in the capable hands of Emily Andrus before starting Killjoys, went right into another successful show on sci-fi. And I guess the thing these two shows have in common is the kick-ass female lead and who better to steer that kind of ship than a female showrunner. All right. Now, for my final choice, and, and as we said at the top of this discussion, it really was difficult to pare it down. But again, for me, there was no way I could leave Ronald D. Moore off this list. And for him, Battlestar Galactica is where a lot of us got to know him. But he really established himself as a core writer on the Star Trek team yeah and you know once he rebooted a reasonably successful tv show in battlestar galactica and then of course added some deeply complex mythos to it you know he, he really became a name that everybody knew and there are a lot of lists out there that consider battlestar galactica to be the top science fiction show ever in fact i read one where it said no it's the best show ever and like damon lindelof 
One of the things I loved about Ronald D. Moore, he had a podcast for Battlestar Galactica, and he was just recording it in his living room. And he did it for the most part just by himself. Once in a while, his wife would join him. And you'd hear the traffic outside. I guess he was in Los Angeles. You'd hear sirens. His cat would come down and bother him. And he, he was so insightful. And what he would do, he'd have the episode on his TV in the background, and he'd just kind of talk you through it. And it was just so insightful. And then, of course, his current project, Outlander, which on the one hand couldn't be more different from Battlestar Galactica, though it is a time travel tale. The interesting thing here, I find his wife suggested he consider the Outlander novels as his next project. And of course, the rest is history. And Outlander has become, you know, one of one of the biggest cable series at, at the moment, along with shows like Game of Thrones and Westworld. And I was thinking of the fact that his name was attached to Helix for a little while there, but I don't think he show ran that one. That was just one of the ones where he created it and then turned it over. Yep. <laughs> it ran for a couple seasons, though. And in fact, my last choice that I had to make was one where I started to sort of waffle back and forth. Did I want uh, someone like Simon Barry, who technically did Continuum and Ghost Wars, but Ghost Wars didn't last very long, just got canceled? I could have gone with J.H. Uh, Wyman who did Fringe, but then he also did Almost Human, which kind of only lasted a season. So I ended up going with someone who had a little bit deeper of a bench, and that's Jonathan Glasner. Now, he's credited as the showrunner for Stargate SG-1, and I don't know about that. I mean, this is during a time, like you said, where that when that term was not in use, and there were a lot of executive producers, a lot of people that helmed that show, and all the Stargate properties. I mean, you kind of had a, have a hard time pinning down who it is. But Jonathan Glasner on his website does say he was the showrunner for Stargate SG-1, so I believe him. And he also says he show ran The Outer Limits before that. And so The Outer Limits ran for nine seasons and SG-1 ran for 10. So you can't really argue with that kind of record. And although Glasner later stuck to mostly directing with CSI Miami and CSI New York, it turns out he's teaming up with Dean Devlin, who's a high-profile showrunner himself and, and was attached to Stargate SG-1. And, of course, show runs the librarians now. But now they're teaming up for something called The Outpost, being developed for sci-fi by NBC Universal. It tells the story of Talon, the lone survivor of a race called the Black Bloods. And after her village is destroyed by mercenaries, she sets out to find the killers of her family, discovering along the way that she has mysterious powers, which ultimately she must use to battle a fanatical religious dictator. And that sounds really cool. But the catch is when I read about this, it seems like sci-fi is only distributing it to its international channels and doesn't necessarily have a home on the American sci-fi channel. So I thought that was a little strange given the, the, actors that are attached to it and the producers themselves, but it's kind of cool. Jonathan Glasner has been away from the genre field for a while, coming back strong and lending his uh, credibility as a showrunner to a new genre project. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. It is kind of interesting and weird in a way, given the success that Netflix has had bringing international series to the U S audience. For instance, dark, is is one that I think a lot of the listeners have watched. And if you haven't, watch it. Well, I think there's even one called The Rain. I think that's what it's called. That's from Sweden or some Scandinavian country that I, I think might be a good topic for a future sci-fi fidelity. So yeah, they're coming from all over it these days. But that 
is a very cursory list uh, that we came up with. Obviously, there are many other choices we could have come up with, and the listeners did chime in. Kevin Batchelder brought up Emily Andrus. <laughs> he, he says, shocker, I know, because, of course, he's the uh, Winona Earp podcast guy. But that was a tough choice. I mean, Emily does definitely deserve to be on this list. And I, I think one thing I noticed, Dave, when we were doing this is that it's kind of male heavy, this list that we have, but that's because it's multiple showrunner uh, genre showrunners. There are plenty of multiple show showrunners out there in the non-genre field and women are still trying to really get their foothold. So maybe next month we should talk about some of the notable genre female showrunners. What do you think? Oh, I think we definitely should because we've already got a list happening. <laughs> yeah. So. And we'll make sure Emily's on that one. <laughs> so Kevin had that one. And then Fred Firestein jumped in with a bunch of Stargate franchise producers who have gone on to bigger and better things. Joseph Malozzi, of course, I think he did Atlantis as a showrunner and Dark Matter, of course. And Martin Garrow, who was attached to those properties as well, is now doing Blind Spot. And Fred was also the one that drew my attention to Jonathan Glasner. So I definitely appreciate his input there. So thank you guys for contributing to our list today and our discussion topic of showrunners of multiple genre shows. But now it's time to dive in with the spoilers. So be careful if you haven't listened to Lost in Space. This is a very difficult show to discuss because it's the entire season. Dave, I don't know how you did it when we did Jessica Jones last month because you really covered the full breadth of that show in 20 minutes. And <laughs> I don't think I could do that for Lost in Space. Well, we'll, we'll see how it goes. I mean, <laughs> I, I I finished it last night, you know, as we conversed during the uh, last week or so. And fortunately for me, my wife was into it as well. So we got to watch it together. But I I never watched more than one episode in an evening. And, and I know the tendency is for a lot of people to binge the Netflix shows. But I, I'm kind of glad I didn't. Yeah, I think this show has a very... 10 hour movie feel with episodic content. In fact, I think it's true that each one sort of had its own crisis that they dealt with. And what's weird about this show is that it's something that needs to be judged on its own merits. This is not a show you judge based on other shows of its ilk. It kind of just has to be the lost in space flavor, things that you expect not only as a remake, but just with the, the Robinson, the Swiss family Robinson feel which is what the original show was going for too. So in this case, I think they started it out. Well, the adventure starts in medias race, as we say in English class <laughs> with the crash landing of the Jupiter two, along with other Jupiter shuttles, which I thought was a neat trick because in the original series, Jupiter two was like Apollo two is the second one of the series. But in this case, it's just one of several shuttles that take off from a mothership called the resolute. And it doesn't take long to figure out that there was an attack on the Resolute by some kind of alien robot. But what's cool is that the attack and the wormhole that took them off course from their journey to Alpha Centauri isn't really explained until the end of the season. And what was interesting is that we never really asked that question. We were too busy concentrating on the adventure, I think. Well, yeah. And, you know, it wasn't clear to me until I did the rewatch. And the only episode I did get a chance to rewatch was the first. But I really missed that it was the same robot that attacked the Resolute as Will finds on the ground of this mystery planet. Yeah. At first, I thought maybe it was a robot like the one he found and that there were several. But, yeah, it was the exact same one. 
And the Robinsons, as a family, established themselves immediately as the focus of the show. And we don't really care about the other people quite yet. They're the colonists that were very skilled at what they did. And even though they were ending up on the wrong planet, even the kids, you know, Maureen is an engineer, the mom, but also Judy, who's like 18 years old is a burgeoning doctor. She's a regular Doogie Hauser with her medical skills. And even will is kind of a geologist of sorts and uh, pulls some very key information out of his head in that first episode where he has to get magnesium from a nearby deposit to burn through the ice to, to rescue Judy. So, you know, though he didn't pass the stress tests, he ends up being very knowledgeable. And of course there's a whole plot line that follows his mother's cover up of Will's not having tested into the program. And it's part of his evolution as a character, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then Penny, I'm not sure how she passed the tests <laughs> because she seems to be just kind of a avid reader and, and jokester and certainly is the comic relief for the show. But yeah, it was very cool that they each had their skills. John, the father, has his military skills and definitely comes in handy. But the flashbacks I thought were interesting. I'm not usually a big fan of flashbacks, but they were so subtle because why did they leave Earth? Well, there was a near-Earth object that collided with the Earth, and they just kind of give us little slice-of-life aftermath vignettes of this dying Earth where... It's not a crisis. It's just a slow death. And so everyone is kind of forced to live as a normal life as possible. I think we see Judy and Maureen shopping for Christmas presents and they come into the store with little breathing masks on, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, the subtlety of that, I really, really appreciated. And of course, the other aspect of the flashbacks were the fact that John and Maureen were estranged because he signed up for another military tour and she found out that it wasn't something where he was drafted to come back in, but he chose to leave his family, which when you have three kids can be a little bit tense. But with Dr. Smith's flashbacks, that's the only other character we get to see in earlier bits of her life. And it's supposed to show us how she got where she is, because if you're on a dying planet, well, of course, you're going to do everything you can to get off of the earth. And it makes me wonder, you know, who's to say that there aren't all kinds of Dr. Smith's desperate to leave earth that would pull something like this where she switched places with her sister to get to Alpha Centauri. So really kind of a, a cool thing that they included. We'll talk about some bad aspects of Dr. Smith and um, uh, certainly the internet did not embrace that character fully, <laughs> but, but the flashbacks I think overall were effective. Yeah. Now, the other thing that I found interesting in terms of the flashbacks, the public is aware of what's going on with the health of the earth. And yet there's this seeming calm going about our daily business. I'm surprised there's not more chaos because some people are going to get to live and some are not. Right. Well, maybe some people are in denial, you know, but that's the beauty of it. It's left up to our imagination. And that's why I like that the flashbacks didn't go into excruciating detail. Now, of course, there could be a season two set of flashbacks that might get farther into that. Who knows? Although I feel like season two is going off in a completely different direction. Oh, I do too. <laughs> but this season certainly had uh, its share of adventures. I mean, obviously, the first episode was about Judy being trapped under the ice and Will on the forest fire uh, rescuing the robot and, and forming a bond with with that creature. Uh, you had all kinds of things from fuel eating eels to the 
Robinson couple being trapped under various, <laughs> I think they got trapped twice where they were running out of air, which I think the writers of Lost in Space must have a thing about claustrophobia or <laughs> close spaces. But there are a couple of things of note that I want to mention, because obviously we can't go into each and every episode's plot. So the things that I thought were highlights were the growth of Will, first of all. He's one of the few characters that starts out doubting himself quite a bit. In fact, he unfairly blames himself for his sister being trapped under the ice and almost seems to become dependent on the robot. You kind of see why he would bond with this stronger creature. And even when he finds out that this robot was responsible for what happened to the Resolute, he's convinced that this robot has changed. And I think part of that is because he needs this robot to be his companion to keep him safe. But by the end of the season, he's doing spacewalks to rescue the family by, you know, pulling the manual control for the door that gets stuck, you know, things like that. And he tells his mother, you know, you got to let me go. Otherwise I'll always be this way. And I really liked that evolution for that character. Cause not all the characters went through that kind of evolution. I think he had to have that transformation because again, I wish I had a dollar every time my wife yelled, you idiot at something will was doing but because he didn't pass the test but as the audience we needed to see him prove his metal and of course i think he does yeah and the other strength i think was in the relationships not just the family relationships but certainly the john and maureen rebonding as they deal with the crisis that faced them and and get over the problems that they had on earth but also you know penny and vj and their little cute moment where Penny wants to take VJ to a waterfall and it's all dried up because of the <laughs> problems that are happening with the planet. And did you get a sense that there was also a slight flirtation between Don West and Judy? Yes, it was a little creepy. You mentioned <laughs> that she was 18 and my wife and I had this conversation on a number of occasions as we watched it. So I still think they may be going there. I hope not. I mean, the actress is 24, I think, but I think they were playing on the fact that in the original series, there was a kind of a flirtation between Don West and, and Judy, but it was a, <laughs> certainly a different dynamic then. But I also enjoyed seeing Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa of Man in the High Castle. He played Watanabe, the botanist or some kind of scientist. I'm not sure what, but he was a very different character than I was used to seeing and just had this very international flavor to all of the castaways with people from different countries, not just all, you know, white bread Americans. So that was kind of fun. And I really liked the effects. The planet itself was majestic. And in fact, I think John Williams wrote the original theme song to Lost in Space back in the day. And the score for this uh, Netflix remake was very much in that style. And whenever they had something really beautiful to look at, the music kind of soared. And I'm always a sucker for that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then last but not least, that amazing ending. And let's go ahead and skip to that, because how could we not discuss the fact that we never really wondered why the robot attacked the Resolute? Was he sent to attack the Resolute by somebody else that was controlling it? Or was there, was there a reason for it? And it appears that there's some sort of egg-like device <laughs> that kind of takes over the ship in the end such that uh, I don't know if it's going to become the character of the robot or if the robot will be able to be recovered somehow. But certainly that ending where they are reduced to the original cast, Don and Dr. Smith and, and the Robinsons, 
And here they go. Now they really are lost in space, such that it almost feels like with this ending that season two will be the real show and season one was the prologue. Well, yeah. And the other thing I think we have to consider, especially for season two, jumping ahead here, is that these are robots. Somebody built them. And now we're going to, we assume, their home planets, or are we going to meet an alien race? Or are these robots taking them somewhere that, as you said, they truly will be lost in space? Yeah, and will they be jumping multiple times? Because it's clear, I think, now that the egg device, whatever it is, is what took the Resolute through the wormhole in the first place, instead of allowing it to go to Alpha Centauri. So that's how they got to this planet originally. And now the Jupiter 2 is equipped with this device, and might even be making multiple jumps. So yeah, very cool ending. And no matter what you thought along the way, there certainly were flaws and I'm not denying that. It's just that I enjoyed it so much despite its flaws along the way. And the ending just blew me away such that I overlooked even the flaws that I hadn't before. So, Well, also though, don't we hear that the human race stole or borrowed the technology that has allowed it to go into space and are these robots simply recovering their stolen property exactly i mean that can't be left out either from the ending which was that it turns out the event on earth the near-earth object that caused its demise was that egg-like device it was this structure that fell out of the sky and it steered the technology that allowed man to get off of the dying earth now whether or not it's something that was happenstance or whether the humans brought it upon themselves is yet to be determined but yeah it all ties in together and i thought that was a brilliant way to tie it in with the original impetus for getting them off of the planet earth should have just shot a laser at the object and knocked it <laughs> off course oh wait that's the wrong show sorry <laughs> But I'd mentioned a couple of flaws, and I think one of the flaws that we have to acknowledge is Dr. Smith and the fact that she might have been just a little bit too one-dimensional evil and not really allowed to do too much that spoke to any kind of redeeming qualities. And the fact that some of the evil plans that she had relied super heavily on coincidences, like the fact that she needed Angela the woman who had gotten shot by the, the robot but survived where her husband didn't, wanted revenge. And so Dr. Smith kind of hid a gun for her to find. Well, she just told Angela to go for a walk and just hoped that she would find that gun. And of course she did. But, you know, stuff like that, like turning off the security fence so that the giant lizards would attack the light tower before they could contact the Resolute. I mean, very coincidental and very fortuitous that it worked in her favor. But we're supposed to believe that all the time she gets away with things, it's because she's this master manipulator. And everything follows from that, where she's just trying to cover up her identity or protect herself and survive. And it just gets worse and worse as the series goes on. Well, yeah. And in the flashback, we see that this is a recovering drug addict. And you use the term master manipulator and, and many drug addicts resort to that. She's very good at what she does. And like you say, she's just so hateful the entire time. But well, I think mostly what bothered me about Dr. Smith in particular was the fact that it didn't seem consistent. Like she actually did a couple of unexpectedly nice things. Like she helped Maureen with the clogged engines instead of 
hitting the ejector button in that initial episode, like episode two or three, where they were trying to get the Jupiter two out of the glacier. And then also at the end, she sent out the harpoon to rescue John and Don from that little fragment of their shuttle that they, uh, that blew up in, in orbit. And she is asked by Maureen, why did you do it? She says, because I'm sorry. Maureen is like, well, do you really mean that? And her answer is, and I'm quoting here, I said it because it was the right thing to say. Exactly. Even to that last moment, you're like, that doesn't explain why you did it. It explains why you said, I'm sorry. (laughs) It doesn't explain why you did it, though. Well, I think she did it because she perceived it to be to her advantage in terms of survival. Yeah. Nothing more. I guess I was just trying to figure out why. Does she just think that they need John and Don to continue on in their current state? I don't know. But I think the MVP has got to go to the robot. Although he was more of a supporting character in the original Lost in Space, he was that initial impetus for Dr. Smith to be brought on board because he was supposed to be like an instrument of sabotage. So it did have kind of the flavor of the original. But I just love how this sentient alien being, as opposed to a man-made object that was sent with them on the trip to Alpha Centauri was just great because then you start speculating like they talk about the swirls in the robot's face having some kind of meaning and maybe some form of communication that we just don't understand and I find that really intriguing because on the one hand he learns very mechanical things like learning how to throw a baseball but he also completely unobserved or he doesn't realize he's being observed by Judy he puts his handprint on the cave wall next to the Robinsons. And, you know, you can't help but think there's something deeper going on here than just someone being programmed to follow somebody's orders, you know? Well, yeah, and it goes along with what we see in science fiction so much, this study of artificial intelligence, and and that in general they are made in our image And I just think this was such a wonderful narrative twist that they employed. For sure. I mean, I I loved the moments between Will and and the robot. I love that Will had to sacrifice the robot at one point and the robot kind of let himself be sacrificed in a way. But the only thing I was disappointed with, in fact, with the robot was that it seemed to switch to doing Smith's bidding so easily and that kind of erased a lot of that feeling that it might be a sentient being that has uh, some power of its own. But what I thought was kind of a cop-out in that sense was that Smith was getting away with it, but then its own kind, when a new fresh robot climbs on board in its original spider-like form, the robot kind of glitches out and then starts following Will's orders again. And I'm kind of like, hmm, do we like that? Do, do we allow for that? I mean, in the end, I I enjoyed it, and and I'm glad that that happened, but I felt that might have been a little bit of a contrived ending for the robot. But the fact that the robot was then pushed out into space, I hope that's not the last we see of the robot. Hopefully, he's latched onto the hull somehow and has followed them through the wormhole. That's what I'm hoping. Well, you know, I did get the chance to hit the pause button and explain to my wife about Isaac Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics, and... and Again, we understand that's a fictional device, but the the idea that a robot must protect its own 
existence if it doesn't come into conflict with rule one, which is not to hurt a human, or rule two, through inaction, not hurt a human. So I just found the robot just walking off the cliff a little bit difficult to take. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that one, we add that to the list too. But I mean, I think those things that we carry through with us into season two, uh, the speculation about what what's going to happen with that egg that has taken over the Jupiter two, presumably they'll go through more wormholes, but they'll have this first binary system that they've ended up in to begin with that the robot calls danger not that he can say many other words but <laughs> i also wonder maybe the resolute got pulled in too you know maybe they were close enough to follow them so that the other families can join in but maybe not maybe it's just going to be the robinsons now well how many times did the robot say danger will robinson in the <laughs> 10 episodes i don't know i don't think if you were playing it as a drinking game you would have gotten very tipsy but he did say I believe it. it was only twice and what i found out is in the original series he only says it once Really? Yes. That's There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Crazy. For a line that's become so iconic, that's hard to believe. That is very hard to believe. And that's a really interesting factoid to end our discussion of Lost in Space. So if you haven't gotten a chance, I, we highly recommend pulling up Netflix and binging that sucker. <laughs> cool. All right, well, let's move on to our second show, which is The 100, which airs on The CW. It returned for its fifth season, April 24th, 2018. And at this point, only two episodes have aired. So, And what a couple of episodes they are, though. Whoa. Well, you're not kidding. And, and honestly, I've been singing the praises of The 100 virtually from the beginning. I think this is one of the best genre shows on TV no discussion. I really believe that for so many different reasons. So when we come out of season four, Prime Fire, which basically is the earth burning up because of the meltdown of all the nuclear reactors, there are some pretty drastic decisions that have to be made. And again, one of the things that I love about the hundred is that it forces its characters who for the most part are teenagers to make these life and death decisions that no person, let alone a kid, should have to make. Well, I guess now they're in their 20s, but yeah. And I think jumping off from our discussion of Lost in Space, this is another show where when you see certain flaws or you're like, that's not scientifically accurate or whatever, you can't do that with this show. <laughs> you just have to see it for what it is because it's really more about triumph over huge adversity. Right. And, you know, what we have... Clark has 
kind of been the hero of the show from day one. And while her role has ebbed and flowed through the first four plus seasons, Octavia has risen to a leadership role that she's not really sure she wants. So what we saw at the end of last season was they discover a bunker that will protect them for the five years they need to stay underground from the radiation. But the problem is you've got 12 clans. So they have a contest and whoever survives gets to take his or her people. Octavia wins. And then instead of saying, okay, I'm going to take sky crew down there. She says, no, we're going to take 10 from each of the 12 clans and we will be one crew. And as you might imagine, that doesn't go over well with Sky Crew. No, especially from those people who had to leave family members behind, didn't make the cut. Right. Now, we've known the time of the commander and the flame, and all of that seems to be over. The whole idea of the commander being a night blood, and obviously Octavia is not a night blood, which for some is a problem. We've got Indra at her side, which is kind of a nice touch because of the role reversal. Even though Octavia's in charge, her mentor, Indra, is still by her side. And and I love that relationship the two of them have. And of course, now we have Indra's daughter, Gaia, in the mix. And she's not a big fan of Octavia at this point. Yeah, I really like her new character there. And I love having Octavia in this role. She might not be ready for leadership But I think the audience was itching for her to take a role like this on. Yeah. So we've got the 120 of the 12 clans in the bunker. Raven, Clark, Bellamy, Murphy, Imori, Harper, Monty, and Echo prepare the rocket to escape Promphia. And their plan is to go back to the Ark, which is still in space, and try to survive the five years in space and then return to the earth. They successfully dock on the ark. And those seven, of course, assume Clark dies in the fire. And then we see that image of Clark in her road warrior esque outfit six years, seven days later. And she's daily trying to radio to make contact with Bellamy and the ark. And she wonders why Bellamy and the others haven't returned because it's, it's over a year past when it should be safe but then the other plot twist is that there's a young girl with clark raising her training her and then at the very end of the episode we see this ship descend and at first clark assumes it's the ark but then she quickly realizes that it's not goes on the defensive and it's a vessel marked elegis corporation prisoner transfer so now we got a fourth group added to the mix And it's likely that these prisoners have been in hypersleep and are associated with a mining company that really existed before the first apocalypse. And then when we go back to Allie and Becca, who created Allie, created the Nightblood as a means to fight the radiation. So now all these pieces are starting to come together where Nightblood actually originated. And I think we have to assume that these prisoners... And their guards have likely been injected with night blood, which you know throws a whole other. Why do you think that? I mean, just because of the radiation that's still out there. I thought it was safe. <laughs> well, well, yes, but they've been in space for 
five, six years, and it was to protect them from the solar radiation. Oh, okay. My favorite of the two episodes was the first one where we got to see Clark throughout these six years because of the fact that season four ended with this jump forward six years. And then for us to be able to go back and see what happened was a really brilliant narrative device to keep us interested because we want to see how they got from point A to point B. Yeah. And in terms of narrative devices, ordinarily, if you follow only one character for 15 straight minutes, yeah, that's a lot. But as you say, it really gives us a sense of what she's gone through. And, and it starts with 42 days after Prime Fire. She unearths a rover, though we don't exactly see how she does it, how she's able to get it to run without taking it apart and getting all the sand and dirt. Uh, but okay, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll go with that. But she is totally without hope and she's ready to put a bullet in her temple. Now, on the one hand, you might say, no, Clark would never do that. She wouldn't get to that point. But I don't know. I think when you feel like you're alone, literally alone, I think that's a reasonable position that that somebody might be placed in. And I think they did a great job, and remarkably so in a single episode, to show us that level of desperation. The fact that she didn't start out that way and tried to get to the tower and to the bunker and get let in somehow, but she couldn't do it. She she tried banging on it and the place collapsed. Not only was that preventing her from getting in, find out, of course, it also is preventing them from getting out. So it's kind of a double whammy. So it was an evolution to, to that point. And I love the fact that it sort of leaves in the background this question of why is there this green patch of earth <laughs> that is not affected? And, and this is the kind of thing where you have to suspend your disbelief with the hundred and go with it because it's just so cool, even though even if it doesn't make any scientific sense. Yeah, I mean, it's like, did the radiation just stop there? I mean, clearly (laughs) the radiation didn't, because when she investigates the house, she finds all the people dead. So I guess we're to believe that, well, the fire only went that far. The radiation obviously permeated this house. I think there's more to it even than that. Something mystical is going on here. (laughs) Okay, Okay, and that would be very cool. And this is, of course, where... She connects with Maddie, the girl at the end of season four. And when she finds her, she's this young, feral looking girl again, something out of Mad Max and the Road Warrior. And I love the scene as Clark is trying to approach her like a wild animal, which is sort of what she is. So we wonder how long has Maddie been on her own? I mean, these bodies don't look all that decomposed. For sure. Yeah. And she has. I guess, subsisted on whatever provisions were still left. Yeah. And although she has the trap set up, which catches Clark. Oh my God. Oh, right. And she could fish at that point too. Cause Clark was like, teach me how to do that. <laughs> oh, but that the cut on Clark's leg. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, gives me the chills just thinking about it. But regardless, as that prison ship drops, Obviously, the two have formed a close bond. And, and, you know, whether Maddie sees Clark as her mother, as her older sister, that doesn't really matter. What does matter is Clark has trained her well, love, compassion, truth. And then the occupants of that dropship appear and they're prisoners, prison guards led by a woman. And I'm I'm wondering, does she really tell the guy that seems to be her number two that he's her favorite mass murderer? Yeah. Well, I think they were establishing that 
these aren't guards. These are the prisoners themselves or prisoners that have kind of bonded with their (laughs) keepers. So, yeah, I think that's just giving us a little taste of the villainy that these characters might be up to. Yeah. But Maddie has hidden per Clark's instructions. Of course, you know, the, the prisoners find her, which is what prompts Clark to kill one and, and Maddie, the other. And the thing that strikes me immediately is having watched what these hundred have had to go through for the past four years. I would suspect this is the first human being that Maddie has killed. And and you wonder the impact it's going to have on her. Clark's dealt with this repeatedly. How will she help Maddie along? Right. And that's definitely going to be part of their dynamic. Okay. All right. So we see a little bit of life on the arc and we don't get a whole lot in the season premiere, but they seem to be surviving. Surprise, surprise. Murphy has left the group. (laughs) He's living off on the other half because he's done with those guys. (laughs) He doesn't like rules. And I guess I thought he and Amori were the perfect couple because it's almost as if she gave him that anchor that he needed and her as an outsider, you know, he's sort of an outsider for the group, but she's a true other. And yet, no, (laughs) they've broken up. I guess that's inevitable when it comes to Murphy, (laughs) I guess. And she's now bunking with Raven. Bellamy and echo are a couple. Very interesting. (laughs) Very interesting. And as she points out, well, it did take you three years to forgive me for almost killing Octavia. So how's she going to feel about it when she sees us together? Yeah. I have to say the, the arc segment was probably my least favorite of the three, but it is interesting from the standpoint of a small group dynamic, as opposed to a couple of loners and a huge group in the other aspects of the show. Yeah, I, I agree because on the one hand, there's nowhere really for them to go. I mean, we have a sense of how big the arc is and, and you know, Murphy has his half or, or whatever portion, but their problem is that they haven't figured out a way to get to the ground because they don't have enough fuel and, and they don't really have a plan for how they're going to get that ship to safely land as opposed to crash land and that's of course when they they spot what we assume is the drop ship with the uh, prisoners and you know they're trying to radio them so so we kind of anticipate there's going to be something that's going to occur with the seven on the ark and you know whatever ship dropped that drop ship right there's a mother ship for them that they can maybe jump between do some spacewalking that's what i'm anticipating yeah now monty's still with harper but you know monty's really struggling emotionally he blames himself for the deaths of his parents deaths of jasper harper's doing her best but you know i know it's easy for me to say because i didn't go through what he went through but after everything you've gone through you have to just deal with it you know i mean yeah as long as there's no new crisis coming your way i think the biggest thing monty has to worry about is making the algae taste good (laughs) (laughs) right 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 now unquestionably my favorite is life in the bunker and the fundamental problem that there are just simply too many people with the resources that we have. And and while it was a noble idea on Octavia's part, it's just too many people. 
And we see we're 46 days after Prime Fire, and, and it, it parallels with what we see of Clark, which, again, as a narrative device, I really like that. And this discussion of a new justice system, because it's always been that blood will have blood, an eye for an eye, and, and, and all of that. And when we find that somebody has committed a crime and they're looking to Octavia for punishment, and they want a severe punishment. And she's like, well, what did he do? We stole a blanket. <laughs> well, then give it back. Exactly. That's my punishment. And, and it really establishes the reason and compassion. And on the one hand, you would say, that's what any great leader needs. But this is such an unusual situation. Yeah, and that doesn't last permanently, as we find out by the end. So, Right. Now, they hear Clark digging, at least her mom assumes it's Clark. Marcus seems to agree with her, but probably because he loves her and doesn't want to argue with her. But, you know, they realize pretty early on they're trapped and, and not getting out. And even with the blueprints of the bunker, they realize there's not another way out. But I love their approach. Look, we've got five years to figure it out five years to solve the problem. And in part, that's Jaha. And in terms of, you know, you talked about Will as a transformational character in Lost in Space. Jaha has just been one of those guys that as soon as I hate him, I love him. Oh, for sure. And and it's so weird too, because he's done so many bad things, but I just love his quiet wisdom. And he observes the younger people leading, including Octavia, and just knows the right things to say. Yeah. And one of the things that Octavia now has to really face is that population reduction is a reality. And and of course, she doesn't want to have to consider it. I mean, she was the second child on the ark and had to live literally under the floorboards right. for that, virtually her entire life. That's going to make the decision tougher. Right. And, you know, her first decision is to go to half rations let's do that but the unrest has already begun as the 1200 learn of the reality and then we see right away cooper is leading a coup to take back what's ours it's always sky crew those damn sky crew people well you know i I wish it wasn't but it it always is so the plan is to take the food and the water for sky crew and, and lock ourselves in. And on the one hand, fine, you lock yourselves in with the water and the food. Do you think you're really going to be able to keep them out forever? Or at least until they starve. I mean, Abby brings up the fact that it's going to take a while, right? (laughs) This is not something where they can put some poison gas out into the hallways or anything like that. They don't have those kind of resources. They just have to wait it out. And yeah, you're right. It it just never could happen. They're going to figure something out. So Octavia is forced now to deal with how to bring the clans back together because all of the different clans see what's going on. And this clan claims this section for them. This clan claims this section for their clan and and everything's splintering. And as the leader, she realizes that, that she needs to pull them together. Anarchy has become the rule of the day. But in the background, Jaha is trying to reroute the power from the farm, short out the electricity, and, and you know the door will get open. But before connecting the final two wires, which will open the door, he insists that Octavia 
tell the grounders to only punish the guilty. And I'm not sure exactly who the innocent would be, but still, (laughs) and how you're going to determine. And then I love her line. The enemy is that which pushes us closer to death. Yeah, she really comes into her own in this scene. And it's just a a slow build to a hugely climactic ending that's just kind of epic for her character. Yeah, and she first has to face off against what she refers to as enemies of one crew. You are either one crew or you are an enemy of one crew. Choose. And she just keeps repeating it. (laughs) And then she just keeps killing them so that by the end, I mean, there's like maybe eight or ten warriors dead on the ground blood spattered all over her i mean she looks like a figure from a slasher film i mean she really does yeah she's just doused in blood almost baptized by it into becoming a new leader right and then the door opens cooper tries to kill herself but octavia throws a knife into her hand it's not going to be that easy and then of course jaha we learn has been shot in the confusion and we don't realize that till too late and he asks octavia to promise to take care of ethan the young boy that he's more or less adopted which again i think is a lovely parallel to clark in that octavia now has someone to watch over and care for as she's making these monumental decisions and i love that guy is starting to come around with octavia as a leader and that line the blood of our enemies is her armor right because they know Octavia's got to go out and talk to all of the clans who have splintered. And there's a feeling that she should clean herself up first. But Gaia says, no, let the people see that it will be meaningful. And, and, and she's right. Exactly. Yeah. And I love what she comes up with, especially as it ties into the book that was found that her brother left for her right. or used to read her as a young child that kind of informs her decisions the way the Romans did it with the gladiators. Yeah. Do you know what book it is? I think you mentioned it to me on Facebook, but now I'm forgetting. <laughs> I think it's Ovid Metamorphosis, which is more or less a history of the world up until the time of Julius Caesar thereabouts. Well, Metamorphosis certainly makes sense for the character. <laughs> right. And we're now wondering how Octavia is going to mete out justice And she says, in Rome, the gladiators had the opportunity to fight for their freedom, and so will you. And then she just throws her sword down into the pit where the conspirators stand. Win the fight and save your life. But we see now where we're headed, and it's going to be a different life in the bunker. And and then at the very end, we, we go to six years later. Octavia's apparently embraced a Roman style method of rule and, and uh, you know, perhaps her, her love of the book that her brother read to her. But we see that blood stained pit. So we know that there's just been one duel, one fight after another. A victorious warrior salutes the crowd and, and that image of Octavia, Gaia, Indra looking down upon them. And, and you see that Octavia is very cleaned up. She's got the the heavy black eye makeup, which I love, by the way, but just that really regal look. And she just gives that hand signal that apparently indicates the champion gets to live. They bring in the next group of four and it includes Marcus. Yeah. What an ending. (laughs) I wonder how long it's been going on and how often, like, is it once a month or, you know, how often do they have to get rid of someone new? Yeah. 
But uh, wow, for two episodes, it, it just blown away. And and yeah, there's a reason why we've talked about the hundred multiple times on Sci-Fi Fidelity, just because it keeps reinventing itself and impressing us, even when we think that it's just gonna run out of story to tell it comes up with something new i mean because you think it would if it's a post-apocalypse you think they would run out of ways to punish them but they always figure out a new way (laughs) well i think now what we're looking uh eventually the ark has to come back to earth eventually the bunker is going to free itself you've got clark and then of course you've got you know these prisoners so what's going to happen i'm i'm hoping that clark the ark and the bunker people unite and take on the prisoners, but we'll see. Right. A new enemy for them to face. Well, it's just a great uh, series. And, and I don't know how many people have made it through to season five with us that are enjoying our discussion now, but I hope, hopefully it's a majority of our listening audience, but I know there's a few people out there. <laughs> certainly the ones that are on our Facebook group that are enjoying timeless on NBC, which got resurrected from the dead. <laughs> got canceled in season one and then uncanceled dramatically a week later, uh, something that you just never see happen. And boy, is it great that it did because season two is just outdoing season one by leaps and bounds. And part of that success is the character of Rufus Carlin, who really is the heart and soul of the show, kind of the conscience of the group and certainly has been in the time travel business, the longest of the three. So Malcolm Barrett, is who plays Rufus and he definitely enjoys talking about his character and the show. So let's go ahead and listen to the conversation we had with him a few weeks ago, actually, but still relevant to the current time about timeless season two and his character of Rufus. We're very excited today to talk to our guest, Malcolm Barrett, who after a host of guest spots on shows like the Sopranos and law and order finally landed his big gig as a series regular on timeless playing Rufus Carlin, the man who operates the time machine. So welcome to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Malcolm Barrett. Oh, thank you, Brian. Uh, glad for having me on. All right, now, Rufus was motivated in some ways by his love for Gia in season one and the mentorship of Connor Mason and Dr. Anthony Brohl. But now that he's got the girl and his mentors have fallen from grace, what would you say his main motivation in season two will be? Uh, I think even this season, his main motivation is to save the world. What's beautiful about this is before their goal was to stop Flynn, and now their goal is more just to stop this conspiracy and to stop Rittenhouse and to stop these villains. We kind of have a different villain every week, you know? And I think more than the first year, he understands how much this isn't about him. Do you know what I mean? I think first year, he kind of really wanted just anyone else to do whatever this is and be in his own world. But I think before he had passions for Gia, now he is in love and is in a reciprocal relationship. And now it's how does he handle life now that he has this particular close person with him? You know, he's kind of lost his family and all he has with Gia. But now it's kind of like, what is it like with these two people in this world trying to do everything they can to stop evil? while simultaneously dealing with their own baggage and their own secrets and their own passions for each other. Well, now, in earlier parts of season two, we did see that your former mentor, Connor, has sort of lost his engineering chops, which, of course, your character has in spades. So will we get to see a role reversal for him and Rufus, where perhaps the student becomes the teacher, or or does that relationship evolve in different ways? 
Yeah, one of the things I love is the way that they've developed Rufus's relationship with Gia, as well as the way they've developed Rufus's relationship to Connor Mason. I am a huge fan of this relationship of Patterson and, and his work. And so to be able to play uh, this sort of father-son relationship and the ups and downs of relationship has been a, a really fun role to play because, you know, me and him have a, a personal relationship and I, and I respect his work and he respects mine. And, and so I think the, the first year, the first season, we have been laying the groundwork with the backstory that me and him sort of discuss and would fill in in terms of like, what is this love between these two men and, and one being the mentor that I think you see it come to fruition a lot more fluidly and in a, in a, in a lot stronger way uh, this season. We really do see him trying to counsel him and, and him trying to understand this man who's now broken. You know, in a lot of ways, everyone is broken on this show, the second season, and in particular, is Connor because of his, his lack of wealth and trying to figure out what his role is when he already has two geniuses in, in uh, G.A. Rufus. Now, Timeless really handles aspects of African-American history with subtlety and grace so that its message really never gets lost or seems forced. So what has been your favorite aspect of the show's depiction of either important black historical figures or Rufus's difficulties as a black man in a past that doesn't always make it easy for him to blend in? You know, I think it's it's exactly those things. I, I, I love that we highlight historical figures of color as well as the life or the lifestyle of what it meant to be a person of color in any of these time periods, you know, and we do it in really so smart ways. One of my favorite genuine bittersweet moments from our show is from the Bonnie and Clyde episode where I help a little girl drink at this colored water fountain, you know, and we don't necessarily say it out loud, but it's very clear and it happens right before this big gunfight between Flynn and Wyatt and the cops and Bonnie and Clyde and, and so that's where I think the show is at its smartest, when it's able to show you those things and have this impact and not even necessarily have to say anything about it in particular. You know, the revelation that, that Bass Reeves was the influence or, or the inspiration for The Lone Ranger was something I didn't know. And, and then have us depict Captain Johnson, you know, was, was a great period. And so... I think we do the same thing in a lot of ways with depicting people of color and depicting the women, either by having them be a real leading character, part of the team, whether it's Hedy Lamar or Wendell Scott, or, or later on we'll see Robert Johnson, but also just showing what it's like for Rufus to have the lens of a modern person experiencing these different parts and these different you know negative aspects of life in this country. And at the same time, experiencing the different types of love and, and, and culture of that country. You know, the Robert Johnson episode gives you a real opportunity to see this brilliant, vibrant black culture in Betsy Smith and Robert Johnson. You know, we see a couple of the different jazz artists there, and, and it's amazing to see that environment, that love, that inclusion and community. And so I think, you know, when it gets it right, Timeless is extremely good at that. Well, now on the flip side of that, how great was it to sort of be center stage in front of Wyatt and Lucy as you played Langston Hughes in Hollywood land. I mean, was that kind of a fun turn of events for you to take the lead? Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, it, it's, it's been an interesting one because Rufus always has this balance between what he can do and how far he can be involved because of the time period he's in and, and the way in which 
he can attack a problem. Do you know what I mean? That one was great because I was able to take on the identity of, of one of the great poets, one of the great writers of, of Langston Muse. And so to be able to use that and make that sort of a, a cornerstone of knowledge for, for children who are watching the show was, was a great opportunity. And you see the way in which he's able to dance with that, you know, whether it be the Party of Castle Velar uh, episode where he's trying to stay back because there's Nazis, or you see the episode where the atomic bomb with her in Vegas and he uses his invisibility to get a car, or you see him with the Black Panthers using that to his advantage or talking to Captain Johnson and relating to that, or, or to Nihilima with the, uh, the Warriors. Um, and so that's been an interesting thing to see the way in which Rufus's character has to dip and dive within the world. And I think you get a very precise sense of his perspective because of that. Yeah, and I think that particular one played really well with your comedic talents as well, which <laughs> doesn't hurt. Yeah, thank you. I've been very fortunate. This season, they they let me, like, you know, really be me. Like, I think this season probably has the most amount of Malcolm um, <laughs> in the character of Rufus, you know. Well, there's another aspect of viewers' enjoyment of Rufus, and that's the shipping angle. And yeah. Timeless has been kinder to Rhea than it has to Lyot in some ways. So <laughs> what have you enjoyed most about the Gia and Rufus dynamic, and what responses have you heard from fans? You know, it's been a great response. I think people are really happy to see this couple live their life. You know, I think a lot of shows in a lot of ways, our show as well, make their bones out of, like, seeing when and if this couple will be together. And I think that was us, but only for a very short period of time. Like, very early on, we got to see their enjoyment in each other's life. And I think that's where the show uses its joy, its couple joy is with us and, and seeing what we go through. You know, the show does a really good aspect of seeing what a functional relationship goes through when they have daily life to continue with. I think what they do with Lucy and Wyatt is they show you how, how you can almost reach that moment with somebody. Do you know what I mean? And how perfect it could be which I think is a greater metaphor for what the show is, which is like, what would you do if you could turn back time? You know what I mean? Will it go your way? And not knowing if it will go your way. I think that's what they play out with the Lucy Wyatt thing, which is with us, they play out more of, you know, what happens with secrets and what you think you can control fate and who's right and spirituality. And I think as the show goes on with us, you see, us grapple with fate versus spirituality. Now, uh, for my final question, I want to ask about Rufus as a supporting role, because in the best sense of that term, he really is the conscience of the team and the show at large sometimes. So what kinds of story arcs, conflicts, or evolutions would you like to see for your character? And you've, and have you had any conversations with the writers about the direction that Rufus will take? Yeah, you know what's funny is, this is one of the few ones where I just, I kind of just sit back and let them do their thing. Like I kind of think they have such a, a more expansive idea on, on history as a plot device than I do. Like I only have like suggestions of like people that are interesting to me. I'm like, I'd like to check the Alexander Dumas family and, you know, and see them as writers and as like warriors and knights or whatever the hell they were. You know, I, I like, really cool parties. I'm like, I'd like to go to watch that, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. But, but uh, honestly, they've actually satisfied a lot of what I'm looking for in this character, which is like dealing with the reality of being a black man going through history, 
and also being like a nerd who like has a real relationship with another person. And it's, and it's great to also experience that with a person of color, you know, and be a prominent relationship. You know what I mean? Uh, I think that's an aspect that is understated, but powerful to the show is how multi-ethnic, how multicultural and how international this show is. You know, I made a joke where, well, kind of a joke where I sent on Instagram where I, I had a picture of Patterson, of Claudia, of Sakina and, and of uh, Goran and said, you know, Brit, uh, Croatian, uh, Aussie, and an American walk into a bar. Uh, <laughs> literally, in that <laughs> like we have all sorts of people on there, and I think that's one of the really cool qualities of the show. Oh, that's for sure, and we are enjoying the direction that Rufus has taken ourselves as well. So, thanks so much, Malcolm Barrett, for talking to us today about Timeless. Uh, thank you for uh, allowing me to blab uh, my mouth off. <laughs> and good luck on Preacher. I-, I love that show too, so it's good all to right. hear you'll be part of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's about to get really crazy. (laughs) Completely different audience than Timeless. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Okay. So I really enjoyed talking to Malcolm Barrett. And of course, since that interview happened, there have been uh, some developments for his character that really can't wait to see what they do with it and how they develop it. Uh, I'm not going to spoil that here, but if you catch up to the current episode, you'll see what I mean. Lots of cool stuff in store that are making me hope for uh, season three. And we're getting close to the finale now. So definitely can't wait to see how it all wraps up. But we really enjoyed these uh, show topics that we had for you today. And we hope you enjoyed our discussion topic as well, since we will be continuing it with female showrunners next month. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. We hope you enjoyed our discussion. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And as for June, we've got a lot of shows starting that we can talk about, some of which are already in progress. So we're going to pick just the right topics. But in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Plus, we do take suggestions for future topics, so just let us know what you'd like us to talk about on social media, or you can send an email to scififidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.